0: invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the book of Job, chapter 1. The book of Job, chapter 1. While you're turning there, just want to thank you, uh, those who've just asked and inquired about my health. I do, uh, I'm feeling better and better. Strength is uh, returning. Uh, less anxiety, so I'm thankful to the Lord for all of that and appreciate your prayers so much to that end. And it's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning and open up God's Word, a profound text and uh, we're um, just going to need the Lord to uh, help us by his Holy Spirit to um, really grasp how profound and meaningful uh, this, this text is and relevant for our own lives. Let's uh, then uh, begin reading at uh, verse 6. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Uh, let's start at verse 1. Let's just get the context and, uh, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him 7 sons and 3 daughters. He possessed 7000 sheep, 3000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's ask for his blessing. Our God in heaven, we stand in the Lord before this, this weighty text. And we feel, Lord, the anxiety, the weakness of our own flesh and the the sorrows of this life, and we ask God that you would now lead us through this text, that we might see your glory, and uh, would, would, Lord, see our lives secure in your hand. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would give us wisdom as, as you opened this word before us this morning, and we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. What is the chief end of man? That's the question the Shorter Catechism asks, the very first question, fundamental question, Uh, What is life about? What's it for? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? That's the question. And the answer, uh, as many of you know, the the answer is that the reason you exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the reason every uh, living thing exists, to glorify God. And the reason that we exist as those made in his image is to enjoy him forever. Now, that's an that's a easy thing to say. And it and, uh, doesn't mean we don't say it sincerely. We do. If you are a Christian, that actually is what you want. Uh, the spirit within you has created that desire. You actually do want to glorify God. It's why you grieve your sin. And you really do want to enjoy God. It's why you pray for God to reveal himself to you and, and, and you want to experience the presence of God. If you're a Christian, you'll experience those, those desires. But we seldom consider the cost of that confession. The book of Job teaches one of the most profound and most difficult doctrines in the Bible. And uh, it is this, that the glory of God being the supreme good Of all things, the glory of God is more important than our comfort. And to say yes to the glory of God as the reason for your existence, to embrace that as, as actually the reason and the purpose for your life is to invite suffering into your life. I was reading an excellent little book. Uh, Maybe you've seen it. It's edited by Nancy Guthrie. It's called, "O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Highly recommend it. Uh, Facing Death with Courageous Confidence in God. I was reading a chapter by John Eves, uh, who passed away in 2004, I believe, um, a few months after finding out that he had uh, cancer. And this is the last sermon that he preached. Uh, It's entitled, A Witness in the Way that We Die. A Witness in the Way We Die. And this is how he starts. Life is not about us. Life is about Jesus and our witness for Him in this world. It has taken me a lifetime to embrace this fundamental truth and all of its implications. It has also taken the same amount of time to recognize that our witness for Jesus is frequently manifested in our absolute weakest moments rather than when we are at full strength he goes on to talk about how in uh, his diagnosis of cancer, learning how to witness to the glory of God in the face of a terminal diagnosis. And that in some way, that his weakness uh, glorifies God in a way that his strength never could. Well, what we see in the text this morning is a man brought to his very weakest and, and, and in that weakness glorifying God in a magnificent way. But the story starts with a confrontation in heaven. And so we'll begin there, verse 6. One of, the, uh, one of the astonishing things about the book of Job is that we get uh, to go into the council room of heaven. Um, boys and girls, as you know, the President of the United States has a cabinet. He has, he has uh, uh, advisors and people that he has put in, in positions of power, and they gather together in the cabinet room, and they, um, they make decisions that impact the, the whole country. Um, when they are having their meetings, you're not allowed in there. Well, we get, to, uh, we get to go into the cabinet room, the council room of heaven. We're told that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the sons of God is language. Uh, it, it refers to angels, uh, those that God has um, created. They're not God, so it's a small g, but they're, they're created to do the will of God. And we listen in on this uh, conversation as we see God there in his council room. Psalm 82 speaks of this. Uh, God has taken place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, small g, he holds judgment. And we find that not only are the angels there like uh, Gabriel and Michael, uh, but Satan is there. We're told specifically that the Satan also was among them. And we should just notice quickly a few things about him. First, his name. He's referred to here as the Satan. There's an article. Uh, Satan means accuser, adversary. In the book of Revelation, we if you remember chapter 22, he's called the accuser of the brothers. That is his name, the accuser, the Satan. And we'll refer to him then through the story that way. Uh, his, his name reveals his role. His role is to accuse in his wicked rebellion against God, to accuse God of wrongdoing and to accuse God's people of sin. And to accuse, uh, we'll find in the story here that the devil's charge is that the whole thing is a sham. Uh, Job is not worshiping God for the reasons God thinks he is or for the reasons other people might think. He's an accuser. But in his accusations, he unwittingly is uh, an instrument in God's hand to magnify God's own glory. And here we see his access. The, the, the devil has, in, in Job chapter 1 here, access in the heavenly council. He's there with the other angels. And then we have the challenge, secondly, where we come now to the issue of the book. And the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan says, well, I've been going to and fro about the earth. And God says, "Well, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in all the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil." I want you to notice who starts the conversation. Uh, the devil does not walk into the council room and challenge God. He walks into the council room, and God challenges him. God is the primary agent in the story, not the devil, not the Satan. I. Uh, Saying that also then means that in some sense we could truly say that Job never would have suffered the devastating loss that he suffered if God had not begun the conversation, if God had not challenged the devil in this way. If God would have been silent, Job would not have lost everything. So why does God speak? And why does God speak knowing what's going to happen to Job, his chief Servant, his most beloved and, uh, and and most ideal worshiper, and the reason is because God is after something great and necessary and infinitely good, something greater than Job's comfort and security. God is seeking to magnify His glory, and so He is challenging the devil. You see, the devil has rebelled against God and believes God to be unworthy of worship, believes um, that, uh, that people should not worship, or at least his, his intention is to, is to deceive people so that they do not offer God the worship that he deserves. So he comes to Eve and, and he suggests God is not as good as you think he is. God is trying to hold out on you. God's not worthy of the worship of your obedience. Wake up. He's he's nervous that you're going to be like he is. And that's the lie the devil tells the world over. He goes to and fro about the earth, accusing God in the hearts of men that God is not worthy of our worship. He lives to prove that God is not infinitely glorious. But there was a man in the land of us who didn't believe him, didn't believe the lie, a great and good man. A man who was blameless and upright because he really did fear the Lord. He loved God. He believed God to be good and glorious. And he reverenced this God and delighted in him. And his faith shone like a a light in a dark, deceived world. And by calling, you see, the devil's attention to Job, the living God is taunting the devil. Have you considered my servant job? Well, of course he's considered god's servant Job. Job has been a thorn in the devil's side ever since um, he's come to faith. Job is, is god's uh, you know a vessel that the Lord has created and put in the world to display his glory, and the, the devil hates that vessel. He hates job. He hates the testimony of his life. he hates the the reverence that people give to job as they see his faith and obedience the way he worships the Lord. Yes, he's considered Job. But the devil responds with a charge. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, in his house, and everything that he has, on every side? You've blessed him. His possessions have increased. You see, the devil is saying, "Um, well, of course Job loves you. Why wouldn't he? You've given him a great life. He's, got, um, he's rich. He's got a beautiful wife, 10 great kids who love the Lord. He's got a sterling reputation, incredible riches. I mean, who wouldn't worship a God who blesses them like that? You see, the, the challenge uh, of the devil. The charge of the devil is that Job is not worshiping God because Job loves God. Uh, Job loves the good life. That's what he actually loves. And he's found out, he's discovered that if he's willing to, to pay obeisance to God and maybe keep the rules, God will give him the good life. That's the charge. Does Job worship because he's convinced that God is worthy of worship above all things or does Job worship God because he likes the gifts? And this, so you see, this is, not a, uh, this is not just a casual wager. This isn't just a bet that happens uh, in, in the heavenly council. This is the question of the universe. Is God worthy of worship in his own being and do his creatures know it? Think about how dishonoring it would be for God if his creatures, the work of his hands, universally disowned him as God. If you're a parent, one of the most harmful things that can happen is if your child, uh, you find out that actually the only reason they ever obeyed was to get the gifts. And once uh, the gifts sort of run out or they have figured out another way to get the gifts, they renounce you as the parent. They want nothing to do with you. Think of how incredibly dishonoring in a fundamental sense it, it would be to the glory of God if there was nowhere found in the earth a man who actually saw his glory and worshipped his glory and desired his glory, God for who he is. But actually everybody is just after the goodies. So you see, it's not a casual wager. Is God's glory worthy of worship and is it known on earth? Well, how can, we, uh, how can we find out? How can the devil's charge be put to the test? Christopher Ashe says this, how can we tell whether Job is pious because he believes God is worthy of his loving worship or whether he is pious because he believes that piety will result in blessing? We must find out, says the devil. And the only way to find out is to take away Job's prosperity. And the devil uh, promises, you take away his prosperity, he'll curse you to, his, uh, to your face. Now on the face of it, it might look as though the devil has put God in a corner. The devil knows that God uh, must stand for his glory. Uh, in, 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 in days of old, um, this would happen between uh, men who, who believed that they needed to fight for their honor. And a man could, could um Trap another man by insulting him in some way that that man was forced to uh, ask for a duel to stand for his honor. Well, it'd be an easy way to read this that the devil's put God in a corner. The devil knows that God has to uh, fight for his glory and um, he's got to defend and prove himself. And, uh, and the only way to do that is to rip. Everything away from Job. So Job just gets destroyed in this process. But there's nothing that can be done, right? The devil's put God in a corner. That's absolutely missing the point of the text. The devil has not cornered the Lord. God has cornered the devil. Why does God say, have you considered my servant Job? Because God knows that he has created his servant Job. And he has called his servant Job. And blessed his servant Job to stand in the world as a testimony to the glory of God. Job is God's weapon in his hand to refute the devil's lies and to be a testimony in the world of the true glory of God. Job is not collateral damage in a heavenly wager. Job is exhibit A in God's purposes. To magnify his glory. And by the way, so are you. This is, this is the reason for the church. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. That God's intent is that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the church is God's exhibit A before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That there are uh, a people who understand and who delight in the glory of God. They're They're not there for the goodies. They're there for God. And God is magnified. And God now then, in his work to destroy the work of the devil and to expose the lie of the devil, says to the devil, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so, the, so, so God allows the devil to go to work and yet in very specific boundaries, not allowed to touch his body, but everything that he has, The devil's allowed to touch, to take away, and the devil does. And so verse 13, now there was a day, a day just like today. Very normal day, a good day, maybe like September 11, 2001. Beautiful fall morning in downtown New York. It's a day that uh, Job's children are celebrating, a birthday. They're gathered together in a house. And then suddenly, Job, in a moment, loses everything. In one moment. His 500 yoke of oxen, gone. 500 female donkeys, gone. All the servants who attended them, gone, except one who comes to bring the message. His 7,000 sheep, lost in a lightning storm. All the servants who who, uh, were watching over them, all dead, save one who came to tell him. His 3,000 camels, all gone. And all the servants who attended them, except one. And then the thing that he feared the most. While he was yet speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job lost everything. In a moment, this this man, the, the greatest man, excuse me, the greatest man of the east was bankrupt and childless 10 funerals to attend to There are two great things before us in the text right now The the first thing we have to just see is the devastating reality of this man's grief and loss and pain this is not a fable. It's not a myth. And we, would, we, would, we sin when we quickly rush past the truth of this pain and this loss, not only just in Job's life, but in, in, in the lives of, of those around us, and maybe even in our own life. Where we just try to shove away the pain and ignore the loss and, and just plow forward. There's something necessary, not just for our emotional health. There's something necessary to acknowledge the truth of, of loss and pain and grief in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weighty thing. It's, it's a weighty thing. God knows that it's a weighty thing. It's not a little thing. That's the first thing. The second thing is we, we have to face, we want to face, the, the essential question that's poised here concerning the glory of God and the integrity of his worship. Because now that, that the devil has done what God allowed him to do, and Job has, been, has lost everything, the, the question hangs in the air, will Job denounce God? <clears throat> will he curse God to his face, <clears throat> as the devil charged that he would do? Does God have true worshipers on earth, or only consumers who love his gifts, and you take away the gifts and they want nothing to do with them? One of the things that I, that I fear when... Um, when persecution actually comes, what Jesus says that, the, that many will fall away. You see, it'll be the consumers who fall away. The people who see no point in worshiping God uh, when, when the good gifts of God are taken away. When God doesn't protect their comfort, He doesn't protect their security, He doesn't protect their dreams. He lets them be lost. It makes no, it'll make no sense, you see, to those people. That's the devastating effect of a health-wealth gospel. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, in the future. Will there be worshipers? Will God find faith on earth? That's the question. What will Job do? And that's, the, that's just the glory of his response, the beauty of it. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped he worshipped he said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return just acknowledging utter dependence upon God that every gift God gave to him was an unmerited kindness the Lord gave the Lord has taken away which is his right to do He has right of ownership to your health and your family, your finances, to do with as he chooses. But the prayer of Job is, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That that the great loss that Job feared above all else is that God's name somehow would be smeared, stained in what had happened to him, and that it would maybe happen through him. What Job wanted was that people would see and worship. Worship God. We're told in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is an incredible scene. The devil has been proven to be a liar. His challenge, his charge has been put to the test, and the devil is, he's just a liar. He doesn't understand. He's wickedly wrong. Job is proven to be a true worshiper, a, someone who really does know God, and, and someone whose chief desire actually is to glorify God, someone who's found his chief purpose, his chief end, and who actually believes it. And in that, God is glorified in the worship and faith of his servant. Friends, I don't know of anything in the world more glorifying to God than faith in trials. Nothing expresses what we think about God truly, <clears throat> more clearly, than when we worship him through tears and trust him through the pain. The trials are actually necessary Because the magnifying of God's glory is necessary. Trials are not accidents. Trials are not unfortunate ramifications of still living in a fallen world. Trials are ordained by God in the lives of his children to magnify his glory. And that is not a pat answer. At the same time. It can become a pat answer. It can become a cliche when we don't take the time to acknowledge the sorrow and the loss. But when we're willing to feel the weight of the hurt and the pain and the grief and the loss and then, you see, then move toward a fundamental fact that that the glory of God will be manifested and that's good. That's our desire. Peter speaks of this in, in 1 Peter, writing to a people who are suffering, suffering real things, real losses. He says, if for, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved, heartbroken by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though refined by fire, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, our faith in the crisis, in the in the loss, redounds to the glory of God in a unique and necessary way. That, that praise and honor and glory rebound before the throne of God when you, his child, in the, in the place of your grief and your loss, can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a magnificent thing. There's a, there's a testimony in that time and place of weakness that is that is has more weight than than really any testimony you can give in your time of strength. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Rick Thomas has written an excellent little book, Suffering Well. His wife left him, uh, taking his two young children, <clears throat> came home and they were all gone. He says, It took me two years to process this chapter in the book of Job. Two years. Job's response to tragedy tragedy seemed to be an unscalable mountain. This is not how I responded. I cried and I wailed, longing for God to return the things I had lost, my wife and two small children. But over a process of resting with God and facing this testimony and asking, how is it possible? How do you do this? The Lord gave and the Lord Has taken away my children, everything I possess. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do you do that? Well, you you do that because you have just recognized what matters the most in the world. It's not our comfort, it's not our possessions, it's not our kids, it's not our life. It's not not the most important thing. There's there's something more. There's something greater. Something that's more satisfying, more essential, more pleasing to your soul even. That's what Job testifies to us. In in, in the midst of the moment of his overwhelming loss, that there's something more than God's gifts. There's God. There's God, and he's good. He's worthy of worship. In his being, and so Job will say later in the book, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. See, and in this, Job points us to the glory of Christ. Job lost everything, but he didn't he didn't lose nearly what Jesus lost, who set aside the glory, the riches, the privileges of heaven, and came to be a servant came to be obedient even to death on the cross, came to suffer the loss of everything, even the fellowship of the father. Why did he do it? He did it first of all to testify to the worth of the glory of God. Father, the hour has come glorify your name. That was his prayer, John 17. He did not do it, first of all, ultimately to save you and to save me. He did it to magnify the glory of God. But in that dying and in that magnifying, you see, he exposes the devil to be a liar and he creates worshipers people who've been reconciled to God by the the life and the death of Jesus Christ, people who've been made new creations, people who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and who are able to stand then in this world, this world that is under the deception and darkness of the devil's lies, to stand and testify that God is good and God is glorious and that we do not worship him because of the gifts, We worship him because he's worthy. And we've cast all of our life upon this. But friends, it doesn't mean it's easy. When the diagnosis comes, there's a battle of faith to be had. And when, when, when heartaches come, there's a battle of faith to be had. Are we willing in that time, in that place, to trust the God who loved us and gave Jesus Christ for as His own Son? Are we willing to trust Him? Are we willing to be a part of God's purpose of showing to the world through our faith in the midst of loss that God is worthy? He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise because of who He is and even in the pain. These are not lessons that we just sort of tuck away and we're all set. These are lessons learned in the reality of the life that God's called you to live. But friends, this, this text stands It's a foundation, a place you can go to over and over and over again as you see what faith then looks like in loss. And, and, and what does Job know about God? That makes that possible. He knows that God is glorious and good. And Job does not yet know about Jesus. You do. I do. We have vastly more reasons to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Vastly more reasons to believe. Vastly more reasons to stand. Testifying. In the midst of whatever loss God brings our way, that God is glorious, God is good, God is worthy of worship. And that's our purpose. That's our end. May God grant it. Amen. God in heaven, Lord, this morning there are saints here who have suffered greatly, who have buried children and spouses and friends and parents, who've had dreams ripped away and health taken away, who've suffered, Lord, deep, hard, heavy, heartbreaking things. And it is right, Lord, for us to acknowledge the truth of loss, that this is not how you created the world in the beginning. But, oh God, I thank you that you have kept us in the faith And allowed us, Lord, in the time and place of loss to say, the Lord is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through tears, with breaking hearts. And Lord, you will call call all of us to suffer in some way. We will experience loss in this life. Loss of precious, dear things. And I pray, oh God, that in those moments we could see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that our heart's desire above the gifts that you give, our heart's desire would be that you be glorified, that you be magnified, that you be adored and honored, revered, exalted as God, glorious and infinite and good and loving and faithful and kind. And that we will worship you. And that you could use, Lord, our testimony and the heartaches of life to draw others to come and know this Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, I thank you for this word, this, this heavy, beautiful word. I pray that you would help us to be transformed by it and, uh, and to live today then and the days to come. For this one thing, to glorify our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and respond. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Let's stand together and sing, It is well with my soul.